This morning, I'd like to invite you uh, to look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And we are going to be uh, examining uh, verses 24 through 30, and then verses 36 through 42. And the reason there'll be a break in what we are, the verses we're looking at, because Jesus tells a series of parables, and then he goes back, and um, later on, once the crowds are gone, the disciples ask him to explain one of the parables, which happens to be the one we're looking at today. And uh, this has nothing to do with this particular parable, but in studying, I found a, a, a comment that one of the scholars made that I thought was so special he said that the disciples did not get more information and get a, a deeper knowledge because they were better Christians, smarter Christians, more special people, or had better titles. They got more knowledge from Jesus because they asked more. And because they asked more and asked more questions than the crowd and the multitudes, because they dug in deeper and wanted to know more, Jesus revealed more to them. And that's a powerful lesson today to us. It doesn't matter about our title, how many generations we've been a Christian, or what our upbringing was, or, or, or anything like that. Knowing the Lord is about how much we seek Him. The Bible tells us that if we come to God, we must know that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So how much you know God and how close you get to him is a direct result of how much you seek him. The disciples knew more and grew closer than the crowds because they sought him more. This is the parable known as the uh, parable of the wheat and the weeds, or the old way of saying it was the wheat and the tares. Would you stand with me, if you're physically able, in honor and reverence for the reading of God's Word? Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then down to verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. 
and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and God, we, um, we just thank you for your word. We thank you specifically today for this parable. And Father, although it is a couple of thousand years old, give or take a few years, Lord, it is completely relevant for us today. It has such deep meaning for our lives, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would work Father, among us to open our hearts and our eyes to what you would have us to see so that we might become more faithful servants of yours and that we might become more like Christ. And your name may be honored and glorified and your will carried out. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Of all the bad things... That anyone who's holding a grudge against you, anyone who considers you to be their enemy, of all the mean, nasty, bad things that anyone has ever done to you, have they ever planted weeds in your garden? Can anyone say, my evil enemy, they planted weeds in my garden? That doesn't sound like, you know, all that bad of a thing to do. If, if someone came to work tomorrow morning complaining to you that their evil next-door neighbor planted weeds in the garden, you'd just kind of be like, whatever, you know, sure, you know. Uh, So let's talk about why, first of all, this situation, this parable would have been a big deal back in the day. Jesus describes a situation where a man has planted his fields. He's a large landowner, and he has planted his fields with wheat. That was, that was what was made, they made the bread. That was life. That was livelihood. That's what they depended on to eat and to support them. And so this was a vital crop. They couldn't just go down to the grocery store. They had to live off what they grew. An enemy comes one night. So this was at night. It wasn't because his workers were lax or weren't doing. There was some evil, sneaky person who comes in, and he sows these weeds. This is not a hypothetical thing that Jesus just made, makes up. We actually have a reference of this in ancient history. And in fact, this was done. We know it was done because there was actually a law against it in Roman records. There was a weed that looked so much like the the actual wheat that you could not tell them apart until they were almost mature. And so people actually did this as a way to destroy their enemies because the weed wasn't just a nuisance. The weed was actually poisonous. And so if someone got the poison mixed in with the wheat that they could eat, 
It could actually be deadly. It could actually destroy their crop. So while planting some weeds doesn't sound like a big deal to us, this was actually a life-threatening blow that was done to someone. Okay, This was a serious real-life issue that could and actually sometimes did happen in the ancient world. So whenever the, the big crowds heard this story, they heard it, they're like, oh, yeah. It's just like if Jesus had told a story, yeah, there was a guy and um, he went to sleep one night and some bad guys broke in his house and they stole his TV. You know, everybody had been nodding along like, yeah, that's a bad thing. But that's kind of all they got out of it. The disciples, however, knew that something deeper was going on. They're like, yeah, Jesus doesn't tell stories just to tell stories. There's something more there. There's something beyond just that. And so they get back to the house where they were staying, and they say, Jesus, tell us what else is going on. What's the deeper meaning? What's the real truth behind that? And Jesus begins to lay out what all of these figures stand for. And he tells us, and he identifies us, he says, the man who owned the thing, who was planting the seed, that's the Son of Man. And that is Jesus, one of Jesus' titles for himself. The seeds were the sons of the kingdom, that is, believers. Okay? And by the way, every parable stands on its own. It uses its own symbolism. So you can't go compare one parable to another. You know, like there's another parable about the sower and, and, and the four soils, and there the soil is the hearts of people, and, and the seed is the gospel. Well, that's that parable. This parable, the soil is the world. The seeds that are planted by the, by the Son of Man or by the owner, that is believers. The enemy, the Bible says, is the devil. And the devil comes along, and what is the devil's main weapon? He can do all kinds of things, but almost everything the devil does, almost everything Satan does, is a variation on one theme, and that is lies. Satan, the Bible tells us, is the father of lies. So everything he does is all about trickery, it's all about deceit. That, that's just his motive, that's the way he operates. And so he comes and he plants fake believers. He plants those who look like they're Christians, but they're not. Right alongside in the same field where there's believers, there are unbelievers who are not following Christ, but are rather following Satan. And they look just the same all up until a, uh, to a certain point. And the ones who will do the harvesting one day are the angels. And the angels are told, hey, even you angels, hold off. Don't mess with these ones who are not real. There's going to be a time to, to separate the two. And that's going to be at the harvest, which Jesus says, that's the end of the age. That's the time of judgment. There's coming a day when there'll be a separation. Sheep and goats, if you will. But that time is not now. What do you and I need to learn? I want us to go quickly, think about three things for us to know 
and three things for us to do. What do we need to catch, just really know from this, and then how do we apply this knowledge to our life? First of all, we need to know that fake Christians are a real thing. Fake Christians are a real thing. If you've ever wondered how in the world is it that there are people who name the name of Christ and yet do things that are completely opposite to the will of Christ, there is one possible explanation. Now, let me go ahead and say this. Real Christians really do sin. You and I are not perfect. And if you look at the believers in God's word, guess what? They mess up too. I mean, the disciples all the time messed up. And then, you know, kind of after the resurrection, it almost seems like they're perfect all the time. But guess what? Even Paul tells us he had to rebuke Peter one time when he got out of line. None of us ever get to the point where we're perfect and we don't ever need some accountability or some rebuke. So, yes, real Christians sometimes mess up. But guess what? There are people out there in the world that are claiming the name of Christ, and they are absolutely on the inside, have no inclination whatsoever to really follow Christ. There's a variety of reasons why people do this. Now, by the way, I'm not talking about someone who says, you know, um, you know oh, I just realized I wasn't really a Christian. There, there are some people that sometimes come along and maybe they've just always believed that they were somehow always a Christian because they grew up in a Christian family. Um, <clears throat> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about folks who deliberately pretend to be a Christian. And they are out there. I've known many people. I've known people who've admitted to me. You know what? In Bible Belt uh, Southern America, especially Bible Belt, Mississippi, I know for a fact that there are businessmen in some places, in some towns, where they're going to go and they're going to enroll in the First Baptist or the First Methodist or whatever it is, the most influential church in that county. They don't care about whether, you know, they know God or not, but they're going to make some business contacts. I also know that in Bible Belt, uh, rural South Mississippi, there's going to be folks who got mama and grandmama constantly on them. You need to be a Christian. You need to be saved. You need to be baptized. You need to do this. And after a while, they're going to be like, okay, I'm going to make them happy. I'm going to get Mima off of me. I'm going to get mom and dad off of me. I'm going to go down. I'm going to walk an aisle. I'm going to join a church. I'm going to get dunked or sprinkled or poured on or whatever they want me to do. And I'm going to pretend like I'm a Christian so people won't bother me anymore. So there's people out there who pretend to be Christians to not be hassled. There's people who pretend to be Christians for financial advantage or social advantage. There's people who pretend to be Christians just for kicks, whatever reason they are. But the Bible says that there are folks out there, and this is from Satan's influence, that will be in the world, and they will pretend to be Christians. And up to a certain point, they are going to look every bit just like a Christian, just like those tares or those weeds imitated almost exactly until the very end when finally the wheat would sprout until that point they looked so much the same Jesus said guess what you need to understand there is a reality 
that there are real people who look, smell, act like Christians, but they're not. And that, that's just a fact. Fake Christians are a real thing. Second, we need to know that rooting out fake Christians is a losing proposition. Rooting out fake Christians is a losing proposition. You see, once we grasp this first fact that, hey, guess what? There are false Christians out there in this world. The first thing that some of us, when we realize that, we're like, oh boy, we got to do something about this. We got we to go get that, that hoe. We got to get that shovel. We got to get those whatever. We got to dig down and we got to start pulling. And, and, and we got to get these weeds out of our garden. That's natural, the natural inclination when we say, hey, there's some fake things in here. We need to get rid of them. I mean, that, that sounds like the right thing to do. And it comes out of a good heart of wanting to do the right thing. And so what we start doing in our heart is we start judging everybody. Uh, yeah, that old how, uh, you know, no, no, not really how. We actually joke that he's the saint, okay? He's, he's been nominated as the Cumberland Presbyterian saint on one of our mission trips, so that's why I can pick on him. But, you know, what we do is we judge people. Oh, yeah, that, I don't really think they're a Christian the way she's behaved. Oh, what he did, who he was around. And, and then we think, then it quickly becomes, well, they can't possibly be a Christian, and we Start getting super judgy, you know? And that's not at all. Jesus went ahead and shut that off because he knows that's exactly where we're going to go. If he hadn't put that in the parable, that is exactly the conclusion that we would have jumped to that, oh, okay, I'm a really good on-fire Christian, so I'm going to start rooting out all these non-Christians. He says, hey, if you try before the harvest time, when it's not ready, when the, when the end of the age isn't here, when the harvest isn't ready, we'll end up destroying the real wheat when we're just trying to get out the fake. If you've ever done any weeding in your life, you know that's true. Some of y'all have never done any weeding in a garden, and it shows. I can tell you, your mom and daddy never made you do it. But my mom and daddy did make me do it, and it is not pleasant. But I can tell you when you're pulling weeds, if one is close to the real plant and you tug and you pull, and somehow those roots of the weeds and the roots of the real plant got entangled, and you start pulling, and before you know it, the real plant is getting pulled up. All right? Maybe in a garden, maybe in a flower garden. And maybe if you're, you know, a little redheaded boy that's not too happy about having a weed... You might not be too sad that that flower came up. Mom who's watching, okay. Um, you know, she can't get me 40 years later. But the thing is, those things happen. They get tangled. And what Jesus is saying is, if, although it sounds like a good idea in theory that we go root out all these fake Christians... The reality is we would end up damaging real Christians. We would end up hurting real believers and damaging the church in our zeal, in our zealousness, in our passion to get rid of fake believers. We would actually end up hurting real believers. 
And so we need to say getting rid of fake believers, that's a losing proposition. We need to understand that. Third thing we need to understand before we go on to what we need to do. Third, we need to understand God promises to take care of the problem at the proper time. God promises to take care of this problem at the proper time. Boy, that last part of, of it, that's the kicker, right? Because God's time isn't our time. But his time's the proper time. Because when we want things, we want them on our time, and our time is now. Our time is, I want it and I want it now. Because faith generally means waiting. Faith means hoping and believing that God's not only coming through right now, but he's going to come through in the future and in his time. But we want it right now. We are an instant society. You know, we used to talk about microwave society, but now microwaves seem slow. I was telling my kids the other day, I looked over to Denise, I said, can you remember when your family got a microwave? She said, yeah, I was about seven. I said, yeah, I remember when we got a microwave. My kids don't know life without a microwave. But when we got a microwave, it was like, ooh, this is amazing. Things are so fast. We'd stick a, a marshmallow in there and watch it get big. And we were so, you know, amazed at how cool a microwave was and how fast it was. But now microwaves are slow, man. We, now we have to have air fryers and things that are even faster. We're constantly wanting to get things faster and quicker and better because we hate to wait. We want things in our own time. And faith is trusting that God's going to do what's right in the right time, which is his time. And we just sang a song that said, I will remember your promise forever. And you know what? God always fulfills his promises, but he does them in his time. And so some of you are looking around and you're saying, God, how are you allowing your name to be run through the mud when there's these people or not even just individual Christians, but maybe even ministers or maybe even uh, churches or maybe even certain denominations that are doing things that are so far from God's will and they're running your name through the mud. And God, how can this happen? God, why aren't you fixing this? And it grieves our hearts to see it happen. And God says, I've got this. In my time, when the harvest comes, when the day of judgment appears, I'll take care of it. But guess what? God says, that's my job, not your job. You're the servants. You're the ones who are doing, carrying out my plan. And, and so you just do as I've directed you to do. So we need to understand fake Christians, that's a real thing, but it's not our duty to take care of it. It's God's. He's promised he's going to take care of it in the right time. Okay, so if we know that, then what are we to do? Number one, we need to keep an awareness of this reality. We need to stay aware of this reality. We need to purposefully in our minds cultivate that, hey, there is such a thing as fake believers out there. We need to refresh our memory and our mindset of that. 
Because again, if we don't, we will be so shocked and disappointed when we see things from people who claim the name of Christ and yet do completely horrible things. And let me tell you, I'm not just talking about current day events. I'm talking about since the very beginning of Christianity, there have been people who have tried to use the name of Christ and Christianity for their own end and their own advantage. Remember Ananias and Sapphira way back in the book of Acts? They tried to use Christianity to make themselves look good. They made a big boast and a big brag to everybody. Hey, we got this land and we're selling it and we're giving all the money to the church. And the reality is they sold the land and they got a whole bunch of money and they gave a little bit of it to the church and they kept the rest of it from themselves. But they wanted the glory of, of getting that of being known as really benevolent people who gave all that money to the church. That didn't work out so well for them. They both that day dropped dead. And the Bible says it was lying to the Holy Spirit when they lied to the Apostle Peter. Later on, as the Christian movement grew, politicians learned that they could claim Kingdom, kings, emperors, others learn, well, I could talk about Jesus and I can bring him in and I can claim him on my side. And then, you know, I'll have God on my side and I can use him for my own glory and my own power. A number of years ago when I was pastoring in Smith County, we had an election and I remember looking, we had a bunch, I mean a ton. There was more than 10, between 10 and 20 different people running for the same office. And I got pamphlets from every single one of them. And I read them, and every single pamphlet there was, each person talked about how they were a Christian and what church they went to, and they made themselves out to be so good. And I stood up in church one day at Summerland Baptist, and I said, praise God, every single one of our politicians is born-again Christian who loves God and serves him completely. Isn't that wonderful? Now, some of those folks really did. But guess what? What I say, back when we're in rural Mississippi, we all want to look and act like we are a solid, on-fire Christian. We just have to be not naive. You know, the Bible tells us to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. That is, we are never to be naive. Our behavior is to be pure, but we are never to be simpletons. We are never to be naively carried away that when someone says, I'm a Christian, so you should believe and follow in and join in with everything I say and do, that we just jump on it without any wisdom or thought. We need to be aware. And by the way, people do this on the left and on the right and in the middle and all in between. Doesn't matter. I'm not talking about a certain particular end of the political spectrum. I've seen it all over. People will claim Christ to get their own way. Be aware of the tares. 
Number two, test yourself. Test yourself. I'm not talking about promoting a sense of fear, constant fearfulness among believers. Unfortunately, I've been in one of those churches. At one point in my life, I was in one of those churches where every single message ended with, do you know that 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 you're really saved? And, you know, before you knew it, 93-year-old grandmas who'd been serving the Lord their whole life were crying because they weren't sure if they were saved anymore after, you know, all the hellfire and brimstone. I'm not talking about that. But I am talking about this, that none of us should just assume that just because we're in this place or just because we watch religious messages or because we went to VBS or Sunday school or we had a Christian family, that we are believers, that we are actually Christians. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. It's just you happen to be in this place. But there is a very simple thing, and it's not about your works. Okay, just like the weed looks a lot like the wheat, you can do a lot of religious activity that looks a lot like the activity that a Christian does. So it's not about comparing the activities you do. It's about asking yourself the question, have I personally met Jesus Christ? That is, have I heard the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for me because there's some bad news that I'm a sinner. I've done wrong things that have displeased God and I can't fix that on my own. But Jesus offers me a free gift of eternal life. He died for my sins. I put my trust in him and say, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're the boss. You're my Savior. And and, and I acknowledge him. I accept that gift. I accept his forgiveness. I accept that now I don't live for myself. doesn't mean that I... My commitment is strong enough or that I prayed exactly the right prayer or anything like that. It is simply that I have honestly entered into a relationship with God. And it's not even about my memory. Some people struggle. Well, I know I did something way back then and there, but, you know, I was young or, you know, that time of my life is kind of hazy. Well, don't count on your memory. What about right now? In your life, do you trust Jesus Christ for your salvation? You don't even have to trust on your memory. You don't have to have written down in the Bible the day, the month, the hour, the year, blah, blah, blah. Do you repent of your sins? That is a heart change. Not that you've cleaned your act up before you come to God. You come to God and he'll clean you up. But you come to him with a willingness. Say, God, here I am. My sinfulness in exchange for your righteousness. Lord, here I am. And you receive his gift of eternal life. You acknowledge he's your Savior. He's your Lord. That's a very simple thing to test, but we should all test ourselves. We should all ask ourselves that question at some point in our lives to be sure we're not a faker or that we've not just been 
kind of rolling along just to please someone else or out of, you know, just general religious duty. Now, I want to say again, I encourage us to all do, to do that because we need to do that. We need to be certain. I'm also hesitant sometimes because there's those of us who have problems with constant fear and doubt. And if you're looking at your own life and your own effort, you will wander further down that hole, that rabbit hole. And because guess what? If you're looking to your own works and your own effort for your salvation, you'll never feel secure. Because all of us mess up, all of us sin, all of us fail. And, you know, occasionally some of us are just have really bad issues. Of, uh, I remember one time I counseled a lady who ended up, she had to go get some help, psychological and even medical help, because she had a severe anxiety issue that just affected her. But for most of us who don't have those type of problems, it's learning to accept the promises of God's word and simply saying, God promised that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I have believed on him. Therefore, I have everlasting life. So be aware of the tares. That is, be aware that there's fake Christians. Test yourself that you know that you're uh, a believer. And then, third and final, invest in others without fear or regret. Invest in others without fear or regret. When we realize that there are fake believers around us, there is going to be, a, just like there's that temptation to try to root them out all of a sudden and get rid of them, there's also going to be another temptation that's going to make us say, well, I don't want to bother with these people because they may not even be really Christians. You know, why should I try to help them or why should I invest? I don't even know who's real or fake. And we have to reject that temptation as well. See, just like in that garden, it still needed rain. Even though some of that rain was going to the weeds and some of it was going to wheat, the garden still needed rain. All right? Guess what Jesus did? Jesus ministered to every single one. He taught every single one of his disciples, even Judas. He explained, he loved, he cared for, he ministered to every one of them. Peter, who would deny him, he'd fail. He was a Christian, but he'd fail. Thomas, who would doubt. And even Judas, who was not a true believer and who would betray him utterly. I don't remember what age I was. I think I was somewhere in my 30s. The first time, though, it hit me and I was reading through the passage about the last night Jesus was with his disciples. And I realized that Judas did not leave to go do the betrayal thing until after the foot washing. And it hit me. Jesus washed Judas's nasty, dirty, filthy feet, knowing he was on those same feet were on their way to betray him.
And yet he showed no hesitation in doing that, even for the vilest one who would betray him. We cannot look at our ministry and our love for others and say, I'm limiting it because I don't know if they're a good enough Christian or maybe if they're a bad Christian or maybe not a Christian at all. We can't do that. We have to follow the example of Jesus and we have to minister and love and invest in all those around us regardless of what our little evaluation ability tells us they may or may not be. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again for this passage of your word, and I pray that, that us understanding this reality, this truth, uh, that there are the weeds among the wheat, that there are the fake among the true, Lord, that, that learning that, that we'll have the proper mindset about it. God, that rather than going home from this place and, and ignoring it or being disturbed by it, God, I pray that we would take that reality and, Father, we would be focused on understanding. It would help us to understand why things are the way they are. It would help us to trust you that you're going to take care of things. And, Lord, it would help us to be just more humble in understanding that we don't know everything. We can be deceived. We can be fooled. But you are not fooled. And Lord, we just simply have to trust you and obey you and love and serve others the way you've called us to because, God, you're going to take care of all the sorting out in your time and your way when the time is right. Father, take this word that we've studied and use it in our hearts to accomplish that purpose that you've set forth. I pray now as we hear this song, as we sing this next song, God, that you just continue to work and, and that you would allow us to agree with you and commit ourselves to following your will for our lives. Lord, we pray and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.